The Queen's Jewish Link presents the Jewish Living Podcast, the show that examines the many facets of Orthodox Jewish life. Here's your host, Izzo Zwerin. It's been quite the eventful year so far, but the news event that on any other year could have been the highlight is now over and done with without much fanfare. And that is the recent peace deal between Israel, the UAE, and Bahrain. You're probably already aware of this deal, but you may not know the history surrounding it. But this week on the season finale of the Jewish Living Podcast, we get down into the nitty-gritty of the Middle East peace deal with our guest. My name is Yotav Eliach. I am the principal at Rambam Masefta High School. I have been speaking, lecturing, writing about Israel, Zionism, the Middle East, the Arab-Israeli conflict for about 40 years plus. And I'm involved in a lot of NGOs in the state of Israel, mostly those that are about strengthening the position of Judaism and Zionism in the country. Rabbi Eliach is extremely knowledgeable in all things Mideast related. And for this conversation, I recommend you glance at a map of the Middle East so you can follow along. One more thing. We recorded this slightly before Bahrain jumped into this deal. So we spoke about it as if it was a future potential event, not a current actually happening one. So Rabbi Eliach, thank you for joining me this week. So that we heard in the introduction that your, your bio is, is, is pretty extensive. That's two different topics of area of interest, both on the education and on the governmental and, and, and Israel advocacy and, and authorship. How do you get into those two specific areas that are quite different from each other? Well, the truth is, from my perspective, they're, they're similar. Everything, everything comes down to education. It all started with me uh, speaking and lecturing about Israel and Zionism when I was a college student. I began to do it on summit tours for Camp Morasha many, many years ago when they had their first trip to Israel. And then when I began to teach at the Yeshiva Flatbush, I actually put together a college level course that allowed me to begin to teach from Avraham Avinu up until today. And, and my perspective is, I'm not a political person actually, I'm an ideologue and I'm an educator. I don't like politics per se. That's why I'm involved in NGOs, non-government organizations that work with people who are, tend to be very sincere, uh, believe deep in their core that what we do is correct and are willing to give up of their time, effort and money, not because of any, any great rewards they're gonna get, maybe in the next world, but not necessarily in this one. So to me, it's all about education. And uh, now there's, it's all fused into one. Now, there's, there's one thing that I know that Rambam Masifta is very much known for, and that is uh, protesting in front of known uh, Nazi homes and outing them. Um, is this, I, I, that I what, just want to stop you. That, that's okay. one thing. We, we're, we're advocates where you don't just protest in front of Nazis. They did that in the 90s. Right. Over the last Back. 21 years, anything that has to do with the state of Israel, the Jewish people, anti-Semitism, those are the things we stand up for. Uh, we uh, protest in front of the Iranian consulate, the Egyptian consulate, the Palestinian uh, uh, United Nations Observers Building, the United Nations, uh, anything that has to do with something that we believe could help the Jewish people, the state of Israel, the fight against anti-Semitism, we're involved in that simply because we don't believe that being passive has worked out well for the Jewish people for the last uh, 2,000 years. 
Absolutely. So we have you on, speaking of the Jewish people, we have you on this week to discuss the recent peace treaty between Israel and the UAE. Now, the history between Israel and the rest of the, the region is probably way too extensive to go on in a, in a limited time uh, podcast. But if we can get a little bit of a background on the history between these two nations, and specifically, if you could talk about the difference between uh, Sunni and Shia, uh, because I think a lot of people know that there is a difference, but a lot of people don't know what those differences are. So I'd like to roll it back uh, okay. as much as I can. I'll try to take a broad topic and put it into a relatively small box. I think one of the biggest mistakes that are made, even by Israeli media people, and certainly by American media and, and American academics, the Arab-Israeli conflict has been and will always remain to a great extent a religious conflict. It's a conflict between Judaism and Islam. It always has been, it always will be. If you read from the writings of the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, who was the first great enemy of the, of the return of the Jews to the land of Israel, who ran the movement from 1920 to 1948, and his protégés, be they Arafat, be they leaders in Hamas, be they Hezbollah, in essence, what stands all behind of this is an Islamic problem with the reestablishment of Jews not as second-class citizens under Islam, but as first-class citizens. The problem Islam has always had is that they believe in the fact that they have replaced the Jews in the pantheon of being God's chosen people. The Christians did that as well, uh, and the Muslims did that as well. So they, accept, unlike the Christians who have an issue until it was changed by the Vatican in 1964, that we supposedly killed the deity, uh, you know, uh, Islam doesn't have that problem. They, the problem Islam has had with us is that we didn't accept the greatest of all prophets, which is Muhammad. So their view of Jews was codified in the ninth century in something called the Pact of Omar. And this is very different than Christianity. Jews can exist under Islamic rule as long as you know your place. And your place is a second-class citizen, unlike in Christian societies where you're killed, murdered, burnt as a Christ killer, etc. The Muslims, you could live. You pay a special ta tax. You're a protected people. Uh, you pay a protection tax. The synagogue is lower than the mosque. The Muslim rides a horse. You ride a donkey. If he's on the sidewalk, you go to the street. All of that is understood. And in that sense, they've been much better to the Jews than the Christians have been. But what Islam cannot and it's beginning to change slowly, is accept the idea of the Jews going back to what they were, which is a first-class people who are still the favorite of God and who are returning to their biblical land, running it as a Jewish state, because if we are a punished people and we've been replaced, then none of this makes sense. How did we come back? How did God allow this? How did God allow us to build a Jewish state? And the worst part is, in that Jewish state, there will be Muslims who will be under the rule of the Jews. So this has always been the rallying cry. That's why if you look at a map today, Israel's, and I'll get to the Shiite Sunni Absolutely. in a minute. The problem, if you look at the map today, Israel's greatest enemy in the Middle East are two countries that don't even have a continuous border with Israel. You have Iran, and now Erdogan's Turkey, okay? Now let's start with Iran. 
What does Iran have to do with Israel? First of all, they're not even Arabs, they're Persians. Right. If you know the history of the Middle East, the Persians hate Arabs ethnically. And I'll get to the fact that the uh, Iranians are Shiite Muslims as opposed to Sunni in a minute. But what's important is in 1979, Iran became an Islamic Republic. Once, and they became not just an Islamic Republic, but a revolutionary Islamic Republic. Their goal is to spread the faith, in particular their version, uh, Shiite Islam, to the entire Middle East and eventually the entire world. So that is why Israel has become their great enemy. The great Satan is the United States of America because they're the most powerful non-Islamic Christian country in the world. But Israel is the little Satan. So you have a country that's not Arab, has never fought a war with Israel, doesn't have contiguous borders with Israel, but since 1979 has become clearly the greatest enemy, and it's only because of religious reasons. And the same thing is with Turkey. Since Turkey has become more religious, very religious, as a matter of fact, it's the headquarters more or less of the Muslim Brotherhood under Erdogan, they become passionately anti-Israel as well. So that's the first problem that we've had for the last century and a quarter, or a little bit more, with the great return of Jews in large numbers to the, the land of Israel. Now, what's happened in the modern, modern period? You know, the theological problems don't go away overnight. There's the theological problems of what Islam views of Jews. Now, the truth is there are many, many uh, parts of the Quran that echo the points that I made. Jews are bad because they didn't accept Muhammad. We've been replaced, etc. But there are also a few parts that talk about we are the chosen people and that eventually we will return to the land. So what I think is happening is that after 72 years of nonstop conflict since Israel was born and about 25 or 30 years of conflict before Israel was even established, when part of the, the most of the Arab and Islamic world wanted to perform an abortion, that Israel should never even be born, there's a certain pragmatism that's beginning to take place in the Islamic world. And they're beginning to realize that Israel is not their enemy and that there is a way to work with the Jews. And if anything, I would say that what the Americans and the Europeans call the Arab Spring, which is not what it's called in the Middle East, right. has opened up the eyes of many Muslims in the Middle East that realize the alignment is like this. Within the Sunni world, it's the jihadists against the moderates. That's one thing. Muslims realize that. And the jihadists pose a threat to Saudi Arabia and to Egypt and to Jordan and to Iraq and to Sudan and to Tunisia and to Algeria and to Morocco. On the other hand, there's also now this huge fight between Shia Iran and Sunni Arab world. Now, a little bit about Shia and Sunni. Shia and Sunni split in Islam in the first century of Islam becoming a religion, which is about, or a way of life, in the seventh century CE. Without going into all the details, the, one of the relatives of Muhammad which was, uh, was Ali. And Ali believed he should be the rightful you know, uh, heir to the one in charge of all of Islam. But it appears from what Muhammad left, it doesn't go by blood. It goes by who is the smartest, most capable political military leader. There was a big clash, a big fight between Ali's followers and the followers of the Caliph at that time. Ali lost. He was killed. He was martyred. 
from that day on after that battle, that group split off and said, we are no longer part of the regular Islamic community. They are, they're not purely from Muhammad. We are the descendants of Ali. And, it, and martyrdom is a very big part of their philosophy because their leader was martyred. And they actually believe the Sunnis are apostates. Mm. And the Sunnis view that they're apostates. So there are differences between them. 85% of the world's Muslims are Sunni. 15% of the world's Muslims are Shia. However, of those 15%, about 65% are Iranians. So what the Iranians have done, literally in the last decade or two, they built what we call the Shia Ark. And if you look at a map, there's Iran, they have large parts of Iraq under their control through their militias right. and, their, and their proxies, Syria and Lebanon. So the Shia Ark goes all the way from Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and now part of Yemen as well, the Houthis are our Shia tribe. So the Arab world, the Islamic Sunni Arab world, has begun to realize that the biggest threat to their stability, on one hand, are the jihadists, but even a bigger threat than the jihadists are the Shia. And who are the Shia? Iran. Iran, at the end of the day, would like to take over Saudi Arabia, would like to take over the UAE, would like to take over uh, Jordan, would like to take over the entire Middle East, including obviously Israel as right. well. Okay, that is an, a fantastic background. Now, we have this whole split, not this whole split, but this whole background with Sunni and Shia, with, uh, I'm gonna say Iran heading the, the Shia part of it, and probably I'm guessing Saudi Arabia heading. I, I would say the Saudis and the Egyptians together, because remember the Egyptians have the largest population of any hmm. Arab country, and probably militarily, they're the strongest Arab country as well. Okay, so Egypt and, and Saudi Arabia, um, and I'm guessing for our purposes today, UAE is also involved in that. So how did we get to the point where not only did the UAE decide to make peace with Israel, but that they were actually the first ones to do it? Well, I think the first ones are the Egyptians in okay. 1979, then came the Jordanians in 94. Right, so the first the one in 20 years. Right, the, t the taboo was broken. I'll start by saying something that may not appear to be connected, but I'll show you that it's connected. After the Yom Kippur War, when Israel and Egypt began their peace talks that eventually led to the Egypt-Israeli peace treaty, there was a joke in Egypt. Now, before I tell you the joke, it's not a ha-ha joke, it's a historical joke. Egypt fought 48 against Israel, 56. 67, war of attrition and the Yom Kippur War. And in these wars, no Arab country participated five times. No one had as many dead, as many wounded, and as many ruined to their economy. The joke that was told in Egypt after the Yom Kippur War was that the Palestinian Arabs are prepared to fight Israel to the last Egyptian. There began to be a pragmatic view in the Middle East to the great extent, the Palestinian cause is a phony cause at first that the Arab world needed as a stick to hit Israel over the head with. When Israel was invaded on May 14, 1948, when Israel was declared or established, and she was about one quarter of the size that she is today, she was two and a half thousand square miles. 
She was invaded by five Arab countries from every, every angle you can imagine, okay? And the war was planned to be a five-day war from the Arab side. And logically, it should have been a five-day war. This is a modern-day Hanukkah story. But that's, that's for another podcast. But here's my point. Israel captured the plans of the Arab armies because Israel won the war. What did the Arab plans cause show if they won the war? If they won the war, the Galil would have become southern Syria. The central part of Israel, where Tel Aviv and Netanya are, would have been western Jordan. The northern Negev up to Tel Aviv, northern Egypt. Where would it be a Palestinian state? Maybe Yamamelech, I don't know. So they had no intention of creating a Palestinian state. And as we say in Gemara, Baharaya, after the 1948-49 war, the Arabs still had Judea Samaria, AKA West Bank. They had Gaza. They didn't turn that into a Palestinian state. Right. Jordan annexed Judea Samaria and made it Jordan. And Egypt turned the Gaza Strip into a military district. So from an Arab perspective, the Palestinian Arabs served one purpose. They were a straw man to hit Israel over the head with. Because if you minus the Palestinian Arabs from the equation, what is the argument against Israel? It's not fair. Israel has a country with 8,000 square miles. We only have 21 countries with 4 million square miles. That's a good <laughs> argument. The Israelis got so much olive oil, and all we have is this black crude oil that you know, <laughs> runs machines and, and power plants, and you can't put it on your vegetables. I don't think that's a good argument either. The argument was that they turned the Palestinians into the Jews after the Holocaust. Hmm. They are the new, they are in refugee camps. They are the oppressed. They're the ones that have no homeland. They're the ones who are homeless. They, they, they took the Jewish playbook from 45, 46, 47, 48, and split it on its head. And that was the use the Palestinians had. They tried to make it a humanitarian issue as opposed to anything else. A humanitarian where the Jews always, right after the Holocaust, we played the humanitarian card, hello, they created humanitarian. The fact that it was all historically bogus is irrelevant right now. Right. I'm getting to my answer. The Palestinians served a purpose for a long time. They were a stick to wallop Israel over the head. In the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s. And the joke about the Palestinians are willing to fight the Egyptians, uh, the Israelis to the last Egyptian, was beginning to filter to other Arab countries. Like, no matter what we do for you people, it still doesn't make a difference. No matter what we do, you people still are mired in difficulty and problems. And I'll tell you what the straw was that broke the camel's back. When Israel signed the Oslo Accords, and Israel itself made sure that a former terrorist organization ended up having a government, Western money, EU money, American money, Arab money, United Arab Emirate money, uh, Saudi money, Kuwaiti money, Bahraini money. They realize what you guys do with our money for the last 25 years. You stole it. So it's not, we're beginning to realize that no matter what, you know, you're not useful anymore. You're not that useful anymore. Even when we try to help you, you screw up. We began to buy into this fantasy of two states. Okay, we'll help you build your state. You didn't build anything. Arafat built his bank account. Abbas built his bank account. Arafat's wife, Shua, built her bank account. Hamas has their bank accounts. 
And there began to be a lot of displeasure with these people. No matter what we do for you, it doesn't seem to work. Now add to that, that you have the huge Arab uprising in 2011. And in this uprising, the Arab world began to realize we got bigger fish to fry. Now Israel has always said, and this was one of the biggest mistakes the US State Department has made for the last 70 years. The key to peace, and this is what Obama believed, and I'm pretty sure all of Biden's advisors believe the same thing. The key to the peace in the Middle East is the, is the Arab-Palestinian issue. It's never been key to the peace in the Middle East, and the last nine years proved that. The Arab Spring, what does the war in Syria have to do with Israel? What does the war against the Kurds have to do with Israel? What does the fighting in Idlib, which is northwestern Syria, have to do with Israel? What does the fighting with the Kurds have to do with Israel? What does the war in Afghanistan have to do with Israel? What does the war in Yemen have to do with Israel? What does the war in Mali have to do with Israel? What does the war in Somalia? Nothing. The Arab and Islamic world has a million little wars going on that have nothing to do with Israel. Zero. Nothing. Nada. So even if the Palestinian-Israeli problem was solved, all these other wars would still be going on right. and would cause tremendous instability. So all these things together have created a backlash in the more wealthy, moderate part of the Sunni world and said, you know what? We have to start looking at our interests in a pragmatic way. And they even have their Islamic scholars who are beginning to look at the different parts of the Quran that do, do talk about the Jews in a popular and a, and, a, and a friendly way. And maybe we need to re-emphasize that. And slowly but surely, this is a pragmatic decision that they're, they're making. The Iranians are frightening them. The Palestinian leadership, the PA and Hamas, have become just a, a three-year-old with a tantrum and a grogger that just endlessly makes noise and never does anything to make life good for its people. And they've had it. They've had it. And believe it or not, I know people make fun of Trump in a million ways. He's not an intellectual. He's not smart. I've read a lot. I've read every peace plan that has ever been written. The most pragmatic, not that I agree with everything in the Trump plan, but it's the most pragmatic thing ever written about the Arab-Israeli conflict. And it deals with economics, and it deals with military, and it deals with nationalism, and it deals with a million and one things. And slowly but surely, a big part of the Sunni Arab world realized, if we have to take a priority, what's important for us, the Palestinian-Israeli issue is, is, out of 45, it's number 50. I'll add one more thing, and I'll end, you can take another question. And this is also the, the grace of God. Israel has become a world power, literally a world power. Israel now is one of the biggest exporters of natural gas on planet Earth. Israel is an energy superpower. It's a technology superpower. It is a semiconductor, computers, superpower. It is an agricultural technology, superpower. It is a high-tech, space-oriented, superpower. It is a, when it comes to certain types of military products like drones, etc., it is an international superpower. You add all of this together. There are countries that, just like the Arabs, who were never that savory to deal with in the first place, but they had oil. The whole world bowed down to them. Now you have an open, democratic, normal country that has all the things I just mentioned. Wow, I, I really do need to do business with these people, not because I'm doing Israel a favor. This is not an appeal at a Jewish shul 
for buying Israel bonds. It's good for Greece. It's good for Cyprus. It's good for Kazakhstan. It's good for Azerbaijan. It's good for the United Arab Emirates to do business. It's good for you. We're both going to benefit from this. So I think all of that together is where we're at. So the UAE was the first country, aside from you know the, the, the ones from, from 94 Egypt, um, that decided to put business over uh, minor conflicts that, or what they see as minor conflicts. Um, actually, uh, just about an hour ago, I saw that uh, Trump posted that there was now an agreement in place between Israel and Bahrain. Right. So I know that that's happening too. At the time of recording, we're recording on Friday the 11th. So what does this mean now for Israel? And what does this mean for the UAE? Uh, specifically, is Israel going to get cheaper gas now? Super oil. That's an interesting question. I, I never thought of that. I, I don't know. You know, will will the UAE try to find a way to get Israel uh, oil? Uh, it would probably have to be with the Saudi permission or the Jordanians or something like that. I think that's theoretically possible. But I think what's beginning to happen immediately is investment on both sides. There's already talk of some about four billion dollars worth of investment coming into Israeli high tech and medical technology from, South, from UAE companies and the government you know, over there, they're kind of connected, the government and the private enterprise to a great extent. There's a lot of families involved there. Both countries are going to share and have joint ventures in business, medicine, technology, health, agriculture, et cetera. Uh, it happens to be the UAE is pretty advanced in science, technology, medicine, et cetera. The question of Israel getting oil, refined oil, from the UAE is an interesting question. I wonder if it is something that Israel would like to explore with them, and that probably it won't happen overnight. Uh, the pipelines will have to be laid down, or there will be shipping lanes coming from the, you know, from the Straits of Hormuz, or rather uh, Straits of Hormuz, and going down Babel Mandeb and coming up Teilat. There, there, there are a lot of possibilities that could be happening, but I think the UAE decided that the UAE comes first, not just for business. First of all, it's also a defense issue. The Iranians are across the Gulf. They scare them tremendously. Having Israel as a friend is not a small thing. Right. Okay? Uh, so it's, it's, it's economics, it's business, it's international relationships, it's security, etc. All right. And now for the rest of the region, as we just mentioned, Bahrain is also <laughs> signing an agreement uh, or something is, is in the works as we speak. Do you think that more countries are going to follow suit? And if so, which ones do you think might be next? Well, the first ones are obviously those that are in the Gulf, uh, because the Gulf is the region we're talking about. Saudi Arabia is right there. Now, so if I had to really think about this, um, the countries that I think would be most interested to consider this would be... Um, there is no doubt that Bahrain is going to be interested. Oman is going to be interested. At a certain point, it's possible. Kuwait will be interested. I think those would come first. They would be the first ones because they're right on the Gulf there. Right. Bahrain is a little bit of a problem because they have a, they have a very vocal uh, Shiite minority. So the Iranians could make a lot of trouble, but that could cut both ways. That could make them so scared that they want to be part of it. Hmm. Obviously, the biggest prize would be Saudi Arabia. Now, let's be honest. None of these countries are democracies. None of these countries are open. 
None of these countries have freedom of the press. None of these countries right now have freedom of religion. None of these countries have women's rights. So I think part of the process is going to be that these countries are going to have to become a little bit more open and this will affect their citizens. I think that will only be in Israel's favor, that local people realize that by opening up relationships with Israel, you also get to make life in your country a little bit better as well. That's something that's going to rub off in the relationship. I don't think it's going to be done quickly. I don't think it's going to be done with any arm twisting. But I just think culturally, these things will happen when they begin to have more contact with Israelis and Israeli society, etc. Then we could jump to North Africa. Would Sudan think of making peace with Israel? That could be. But you just stop and think about it. If Oman makes peace, and Bahrain makes peace, and Kuwait makes peace, and Saudi Arabia makes peace, add that to Egypt and Jordan, you already have a bulwark over there. You got the wealthiest Arab countries, you have the most populous Arab countries, you have the countries that control one side of the Persian Gulf, another country that controls the Suez Canal. This is a whole different alignment politically, militarily, economically than ever was before. Exactly, yeah. I, I definitely hear it. And, and by the way, for those who are listening, uh, if you want to pull up a map that actually really helps to see exactly where everybody is situated on this, if, you, if you're not familiar with Middle Eastern geography, it really helps. My last group that I want to ask about uh, how this affects is Jews in general. So yes, Israelis, now they, there's uh, the ability to go to the UAE, there's investments going back and forth. Is there any new ability for Jews with the UAE uh, regardless, maybe they're American, British, other European Jews, it might not have existed before. I think one of the things that helped open up the doors there, I know people who have been to the UAE for the past few years, American Jewish business people, Orthodox. So if anything, uh, they've already helped pave the way. Uh, I, I think that they will be happy, uh, uh, you know, to have Jewish businessmen, uh, people who are involved in science, people who are involved in technology, I think it will not just be with Israel, though Israel will clearly be the, the, the most significant partner. I think that uh, diaspora Jews, who otherwise would think that the UAE or some of these other countries that may join would not have been an open place for them, I think some already have found that they are open and will be very, uh, very uh, inviting uh, to, to Jews to be there. Hmm. All right. So we went through the good. Um, I'd like to see if there, if you know of any criticisms of this peace deal. Now, when I say criticisms, I don't mean, well, Trump did it, so it's bad. I'm sure there's plenty of that. I want to know if there's any legitimate reasons why somebody uh, looking at this deal would say, you know what, that, that, that doesn't... So let, me, let me start with the right in Israel, okay. and then I'll go to the left. On a personal level, I, I am clearly right of center. I'm not all the way to the right. If you, if you, if you, if I was to vote in Israeli elections, I would vote Yamina. That's personal. Okay. Uh, I am friendly with the people around Naftali Bennett on a personal note. I know these guys. I know who they are. I know what they believe. I know what they think. And on many levels, I am of like-minded. So I'm pretty familiar with them and I'm familiar to people to the right of them. I think the biggest criticism from the right is a fear that the price that Israel paid to make peace with the UAE 
is that Israel cannot and will not be able to take Area C, which is about at least 50% of Judea, Samaria, and the Jordan River Valley. And I will not use the word annex because it's the wrong word legally or politically, but to basically apply Israeli law to Area C, which is implied in the Trump peace plan at a certain point that that is something that could happen. Now, before all of this, the talk was in April and May that sometime in June or July, Area C, for those who don't know, when Israel signed the Oslo Accords, Judea and Samaria and Gaza were divided into three areas, A, B, and C. Gaza fell into area A, unfortunately, and that is completely and totally under the control of the Palestinian Authority, certainly since 2005. Area A, just to give you a brief overview, are all the large cities in Yudav Shamron. I'll go no south north, Beit Lechem, oh, rather, Hebron, Beit Lechem, uh, Ramallah, Shechem, Jenin, uh, Kalkilia, Tulkarem. These are the large Arab cities in Judea and Samaria. That's area A. Since 1996, with the exception of Hebron, and you can put in Yericho, which was, came in 94, all of these cities have been under the direct control of the Palestinian Authority. These people have, for all intents and purposes, have not been under any Israeli rule now since 1996. Okay, 24 years. Israel didn't enter these areas until 2002 in Operation Protective Shield after the suicide bombing war in 2001 and two. Area B are the immediate Arab villages that are clustered near each one of the cities I mentioned. Next to each one of these cities could be 30, 40, 50 Arab villages. That's called Area B. In Area B, the Palestinian Authority has full political control, meaning those people have a PA identity card. Those people, their license plate is PA. If they want to build a house, they have to get a permit from the PA. Security-wise, Israel has the right to enter into Area B based on the Oslo 1 and Oslo 2 agreements. As we all know, after the suicide bombing wars, 2000, 2001-2, and Operation Protective Shield, our relationship with the PA is totally deteriorated. It's a fiction. Oslo is a fiction. So there's been more and more talk in Israel of eventually just taking Area C and making it part of Israel. That's where all the Jewish towns are in Area C. Gush Etzion, Area C. Malal Dumim, Area C. Ariel, Area C. The parts of Modi'in, Hashmonaim, that are on the other side, Area C. So all the large, all the Jewish towns, 97% of them are in Area C, including the Jordan River Valley. The, the talk has been, especially since after the Trump plan was issued, that eventually, in the near future, Israel will make Area C finally part of the state of Israel. In that area, just for you and your viewers, maybe 100,000 Palestinian Arabs live there. Maybe. And I can tell you firsthand and from a lot of friends, most of them are begging to have Israeli citizenship. They are sick of the PA. They're sick of their, their double crossing them, no freedom of religion, no rid of habeas corpus, uh, taxation without representation. Abu Mazen is in the 
14th year of a five-year term, hmm. okay? They're, they've had it. So if we annex or extend Israeli law into Area C, between 50 and 100,000 Palestinian Arabs would get Israeli citizenship. I think most of them would like, thank you, God, if that happened, okay? It has nothing to do with the Arabs who live in Area B and A. That's not our problem right now. The right fears that this UAE deal was made at the expense of Israel applying sovereignty to Area C. If that is true, then I believe that is a little bit too heavy a price. But from what I've been reading, and I've read a lot of different interviews with a lot of different people, including with Ambassador Friedman, apparently it's been put off the table for now. But it's something that will probably be reinstituted six months from now, a year from now. Why am I optimistic that it's not a problem? Abba Eben said, you know, Abba Eben was one of Israel's, he was a, Israel's foreign minister for about 20 years. He was, in the, he was a, a UN ambassador. He was Israel's uh, ambassador to the US. He was in Knesset from 48 to 92. He had a brilliant line about the Palestinians. The Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Now, what I believe is the Trump plan is, is an opportunity for them. I'm not totally comfortable with everything in that plan, but if they followed that plan, they could have as close to independence as is humanly possible and living in a, in, in a real Singapore next door to Israel. <laughs> but being, they are, being that they are led by who they are led and they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity, as you can see, they're screwing this all up. And I believe, not thanks to the brilliance of the Israelis, but more to the stupidity of Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, that taking Area C and extending Israeli law will happen. Not because we've outmaneuvered them, it's just the PA and Hamas are gonna be so anti-America, so anti-UAE, so anti-Israel making peace that they'll shoot themselves in the foot and when the time comes to do this, and Israel will do it, nobody cares. But right now, that's the, that's the right's biggest fear. Now, what's the left's biggest fear? The hardcore left is right now in a cold sweat. The international left, which is, I hate to say it, the American Jewish left and the Israeli left. Without the American Jewish left, the Israeli left is zero. They don't have that many seats in Knesset, but they get tens of millions of dollars from the United States, hardcore Jewish left, the new Israel fund, they get money from the EU, from the Rockefeller Foundation. They've always premised their philosophy. The only way to make peace is to make big physical concessions. And the right always says, peace for peace. What was just pulled off with the UAE is peace for peace. Stuff that the right has been saying for 72 years. It's the nightmare scenario for the hardcore left. The answer is I can make peace with the Arabs. I don't have to give back my pinky or my thumb or my right ear or, you know, or Gaza and have them fire rockets at me or God forbid return Ramallah and have you know, Qasem rockets fired into Kfar Saba. So their whole philosophy just imploded. Who says you can't have peace for peace? So that's their biggest fright. That's their nightmare. And the answer is, you can't have peace for peace. And I think eventually a new leadership will come in the Palestinian world and we'll be able to make peace for peace. I don't know when, 
10 years, 20, 30, but Israel's got to hold its ground. But those are the two groups who are against it. The right, who I think has something more legitimate to be uh, uh, fear, uh, fear, and I gave you my response. And the left, this is a nightmare scenario for them. So I'll ask you a little bit further about that. And that's uh, from the Palestinian perspective. And this is one criticism that I've heard is that how does the UAE have the right to negotiate something about the Palestinians? Because in this deal, there was this Area C issue that came up. No, no. The, if anything, the UAE is saying, we only made a deal with Israel because they promised us they will not extend Israeli law into Area C. Right. So, so meaning, meaning they are the protectors of the Palestinians. Right. But then why, people would say, why does the UAE have the right to give that up? Why couldn't they ask for more? Why did why, why was that just that small little thing that they gave up? They didn't, that, they didn't, I'm, that, I'm not following. Sorry, let me, let me, the let me, UAE I'm, did something for the Palestinians. Right, but uh, the criticism would be that wasn't enough in order to make peace with Israel. And they say that UAE is not the Palestinians. They shouldn't have the right to decide what the peace is, what, what peace is worth when they use the Palestinian things as the pawn. So I, 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 would, I would put the thing upside down. I would spin it on its head. Put the UAE aside for a second. The UAE doesn't exist. It's June 30th, 2020. It's two months ago and two weeks ago. Where were the Palestinian leadership on their own? They were in the bottom of a hole 50 feet deep that they dug, and they, they don't even have a ladder that's 10 feet high. They have totally blown the Oslo Accords. They have violated every single thing written in the Oslo Accords. All they've done is shoot themselves in the foot day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. The Israeli public that was for two states, thanks to the Oslo War, thanks to Hamas's rocket attacks, thanks to the nonstop poison coming from Palestinian Authority television, textbooks, school, radio, mosques, They're, most Israelis have no interest in sitting down with these people. They put themselves in a hole that was so deep that if Israel wanted to, on July 1st, they could have gotten 80 Harei Knesset to say, or 75, let's extend Israeli law to Area C. Who's got a problem with it? A hardcore left? The Arabs in the Knesset, everybody else? No. The UAE rescued the Palestinian Authority. They rescued them from themselves. Because without the UAE, there is no reason not to extend Israeli law to Area C. You guys have blown it. There's nothing to talk. So I see it the other way. They should be kissing their toes. Now, I don't believe it's a long-term promise. Israel would not give such a long-term promise. But if anything, I think the Palestinian Authority should look at the UAE as their heroes. So I actually have a little bit of a different take on it. If you said take out the UAE from it, I'd like to take out the Palestinians from this. The UAE could have made peace with Israel without including any, any restrictions on any Israeli-Palestinian conflict. They added that in. They didn't need to do that. I think they added that in to save a little face, but they didn't really need to do that. They added it in as, as, as kind of a bonus. So now they both get peace with Israel and they get to have the economic advantages of that. Plus, there's also this little piece that, uh, uh, for the Palestinians in there as well. That's, I, that's how I kind of looked at it. Well, 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 you're correct. The UAE, my analysis has put the Palestinian Authority and Hamas and their agenda way on the bottom of the list. 
but in the Arab world right now, and by the way, it's a, it's a, it's a culture where saving face is not a small thing. People in the West don't grasp this, okay? Saving face in the Middle East is not a small thing. Right. And therefore, saving face means there's certain steps I need to take. So what they, this is a little fig leaf that they did. This is the fig leaf to cover themselves that yes, even though I did make peace, I, I took you in mind. If you ask me, if you would have a private discussion with political leaders in the UAE, and the door was closed and there was no tape recorder and there was no leaks, they would tell you that the leaders of the, of the Palestinian Authority and Hamas are fools, morons, idiots, decrepit, uh, you know, uh, corrupt, you name it. And they did what they had to do because that's something you have to say right now in the Arab world. The only Arab country that could get away and even they are the Egyptians. When Egypt made peace with Israel, they threw them out of the Arab League. Okay, Sadat reminded them that one out of every three Arabs is Egyptian. <laughs> okay, so you threw us out of the Arab League. Okay. We'll make our own league. You threw out one third <laughs> of the Arab world. Now, the UAE right. is not that powerful. So you're correct. They needed a fig leaf. Right. Okay. So now we've come to the uh, part of the show. It's called Dabaracher, where I give my guests an opportunity to talk about anything else that they want under the sun. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Uh, would you like it to be related to what we spoke about? It could be. It doesn't have to be. I think in, uh, I guess in, in, in terms of streams of consciousness, I think I would like to relate a little bit to what we spoke about. This is your time. I, I think to a great extent, I think, I think the time has come for American Jewry as a whole, which is predominantly the Orthodox, because the American Jews who are not religious, unfortunately, they've left the fold to such an extent that I don't know if it's realistic for them to ever return. I say this sadly, uh, but I think uh, with a very pragmatic perspective. I think American Orthodox Jews or traditional Jews have to sit and take a look at all the things that have been going on the last few months since the riots began in Minnesota and what is happening in this country and what has happened to the political discourse and how we've been thrown into the middle of this political discourse and how the American left, which used to always not be Israel's enemy in most people's eyes, for people who have been watching, they have been the enemy for quite some time, they have become clearly and openly anti-Semitic. They're very clever about it, but they're becoming less and less clever. In my lifetime, I did not expect the Democratic Party to become what the Democratic Party is today. The fact that there is a squad, and if the, the fact that you have people like Kamala Harris, if you look at people that she's hung out with, things that she said about Farrakhan, people who are friendly with Farrakhan, who are okay with her, there is a very pernicious anti-Semitism that is now totally open among American athletes, American entertainers, in particular in the African-American community. And what's consistent about all of them is that they're either with Black Lives Matter or, or somehow to Farrakhan. You know, there are only a handful of people, obviously there are a lot of African-American conservatives who have attacked all of this, but I think the one African-American liberal who I think is a real hero is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. 
Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, because he's a liberal, you know, I'm a fan. There are many, like Candace Owens, I'm a big fan of hers. <laughs> Candace Owens is a very big, powerful, 31-year-old African-American conservative. I think she's great. She's wonderful. I'd vote for her, you know, up to the rank even of a senator. The only leading African-American liberal to call out the anti-Semitism on the left, especially in the African-American community, has been really Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. That concerns me. What he wrote is so true and so devastating, but he didn't have a lot of backup. There weren't a lot of voices backing up Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. That's concerning to me. I'm saying that I believe it's time for Orthodox American Jews to stop buying into the fact that the ones we have to worry about are the American Nazis, or the American skinheads, or the American fascists. They are who they are. They've never liked us. But they, don't, they can't bring 10,000 people into the streets. They can't bring 50,000 people. They can't bring 100 people into the streets. They don't burn down cities. The left does. Antifa, Black Lives Matter, the followers of Farrakhan. What they all have in common is a pernicious hatred of Jews, Israel, Zionism. It's a, very, it's a witch's brew. And they're mainstream. Okay? Nobody right-wing is mainstream in the Republican Party. The few lunatics that exist on the extreme right, they are shunned by the Republican Party. The Democratic Party has a hard time saying Farrakhan, bad. They can't do it. When Ilhan Omar with her Benjamins and her other things and how we've hypnotized the world, they couldn't get the Democratic Congress, House of Representatives, couldn't get a condemnation that she was anti-Semitic. They were against all forms of bigotry. What does that mean? So I'm just saying it's time to open up the eyes, open up the ears, to take a reassessment. What is going on around us? What does this mean to us? And stop being afraid only of the vicious right, old-fashioned Nazi skinhead. They're a problem. But look who's in the streets. Look who's tweeting with 70 million people. Look who's got these 10 million on Instagram. You know, that talks about Farrakhan and talks about the Jews. And look at the T-shirts that some of the BLM people are wearing. There's things that should be of great concern that I'm not quite sure the Orthodox Jewish community has reached a point that they're doing a serious assessment about this. And that's just something I'm throwing out there that I don't have conclusions for you. But I think it's something that we need to, uh, to look at carefully. On that note, I was wondering if you thought, because I had this conversation with a bunch of friends, there is one person that I think could be a bridge between the Jewish and African-American communities. And he happens to live in Israel now. His name is Amari Stoudemire or Yehoshaphat Stoudemire. Um, He does not, I think purposely, he does not get into any of these political conversations. But I was wondering if you thought that he could be that person or, and or if he should be that person. Well, first of all, if, around July, he did, post, he did post something on the internet about how ignorant it is for African-Americans to be anti-Semitic. I still have it on my phone. Uh, he did post that. I think realistically, he is not such an icon in American society anymore. He's been out of the country for a long time. He is not, you know, people here are 15 minutes of fame. And in America, his 15 minutes are over. Uh, that's my opinion. I think, I think 
the ones who could create a bridge, I, I'll, I'll tell you what could happen. And, I'm, and I'm, I actually believe this will happen and this leads to another area. I have to think one of the biggest surprises in the upcoming election will be the African-American vote. And I think this will be a good thing for America and a good thing for Jews and a good thing for Jews and African-Americans. Trump won between five and 8% of the African-American vote in 2016. The sense that I'm getting, not from the news, from the internet, from YouTube, is that every day there are more and more conservative African-Americans going out there and saying, you know what? There is no doubt in my mind that I'm voting for Trump. He's better for me economically, socially, educationally, prison reform, you name it. I believe that there will be a 20 plus percent African-American vote for Trump. Wow. Which I think, I think that is going to be the biggest election surprise. Among them, there will be some conservative black Republicans voted into the House of Representatives. And one of them is Burgess Owens. I think he's going to win in Utah. And I think Kim Klaychik, I think is her name. I think she'll be the first Republican, black, white, green, or yellow to win in Baltimore since in the last 50 years. (laughs) And I believe that these political figures could end up being real bridges between the African-American community and the Jewish community in the Orthodox in particular, because we share the same values and ideas. The conservative values that the Republican Party stands for, as opposed to the Democratic Party right now, are much more in line with really what most African-Americans were brought up with. If you talk about their culture, their religious values, et cetera, and there's, there's beginning to be a revolt. You know, Cardi B is not who, it's a, she's an embarrassment, I think, for most thinking African-Americans. There's been a whole Twitter war between her and this Candace Owens woman I've been talking. Candace Owens is an intellectual who appears on YouTube and she's smart and she has so much to say and, so, and she's appeared before Congress. Women like her, men like Burgess Owens, they either will be politically active or literally members of the house. Those I think will be bridges. That's one of the things that I'm slightly optimistic about. Okay, that is a huge prediction right here, 20%. Of the African American. If it's not twenty, it'll be seventeen, eight. I think. Right, so that would be that would be basically more than I, double last last times. So. I think it's going to be stunning, and wow. I think that's going to really tip the scales in uh, Trump's. That's that's based on what I'm seeing. All right, Rabbi Eliach, can you talk a little bit about your book, where people can find it um, and purchase it? Well, thank you. Uh, the book is called. Judaism, Zionism, and the Land of Israel. I, it's, it may be the only book that begins to explain the Jewish connection to the Land of Israel with Abraham Avinu, and also by dissecting the Torah. I wrote this for Jews and non-Jews. So I didn't, it's not, I'm not going into deep detail, but I redefined Yehadud as a way of life and explained that central to that way of life, among other things, is the Land of Israel. And then I tell the entire story of the Jewish people from Abraham Avinu until 2017. I have 20, I don't want to brag, but if you read the stuff on Amazon, it's a long book, but it's a readable book. The book has 20 pages of bibliography, 450 footnotes, and 52 maps. But it doesn't read like a heavy textbook. I, one of the nicest things people write 
is that it's readable. It's interesting. It reads like a story. It doesn't talk over your head. Far from it. And I'm not condescending to my readers. And it's something that really empowers you. And you really understand a lot of things that you never were with. I'm connecting a lot of dots between the Tanakh, between Tar Shabal Peh, between the Sidur, between modern history, between events that have happened the last 70, 50, 20, 10, five years. It's, I, it, and with the maps, it really shows you and explains everything. It's available on Amazon. All you have to do is put in my name, Yotav Eliach, and the book pops up. And we'll link to it in the show notes as well. Yeah, it's Y, oh, thank you. It's Y-O-T-A-V-E-L-I-A-C-H. And the book is Judaism, Zionism, and the Land of Israel. Uh, I think that it's, you can read it. The youngest readers are 16. And I think the oldest reader I've had is 100. And it's, it, you, you, it's for everybody in between. I know reading is on the decline. But if you're really interested and you want to learn our, our story, and non-Jews who want to learn our story, you know, they find the book. Uh, I've had, uh, you know, three nice plugs in the back from Alan Dershowitz, Edwin Black, and from Yossi Klein Alevi, who happens to be to the left of me, and we're friends, but even he recognizes that the book has, you know, great value to it. Phenomenal. Rabbi Eliach, thank you so much for joining us this week, and uh, we look forward to hearing from you in the future. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Shabbat Shalom. Be well. Thank you. My thanks to Rabbi Yotav Eliach for clarifying the Middle East peace deal for us. Links to purchasing Rabbi Eliach's book can be found in the show notes below. And thank you to you, our loyal listeners, who have been with us through the first 50 or so episodes of this series. We will announce our return in all of our social media platforms. In the meantime, if you have a topic that you think needs a deep dive, let us know. For now, until we see each other again, as always, call to the Jewish Living Podcast is produced by Sorelli Pikus. Our theme song is The Band by A.B. Rottenberg from Journeys 4. You can email the show at jewishlivingpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Jewish underscore living. The Jewish Living Podcast is recorded in conjunction with the Queen's Jewish Link.